Hello. Hi. I think this is going to be our best sounding episode yet. Really? Even with my dog crying in the background? I mean, that's a norm, but. <laughs> Lulu, come here. Maybe the best sounding episode. It's also the weirdest way we've ever recorded an episode. We basically did it backwards. Yeah, a hundred percent. So, um, first off, we're fascism, spelled F A S H I S M, and no, we are not pro-fascism. Is that something people have been saying? I don't know, but I, you know, I was just thinking. Let's just nip it in the bud. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So we, you know, take topics in art and fashion and use it as a jumping off point for having conversations about culture and having a good time. (laughs) You know how, I don't know. I was going to be like, you know how you look through a kaleidoscope? That's too direct. That's too obvious. Wait, I don't even really get the analogy. It wasn't there. Okay. What about this? You know how you look through a prism and it's just like the prism itself is like a stone. Mm -hmm. But when you look Mm -hmm. through it, it's like all of these colors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially when light hits it i'm really killing this and no i like it i like it fashion prism uh, yeah it's like when we look through look at fascism or fashion sorry it's like suddenly a decorated plethora of dancing colors and Mm -hmm. what do you think of that i'm enjoying the analogy okay good 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 it's all connected man god you'll get it you either get it or you don't exactly i was actually just explaining my dad the podcast right before this because he was like wow you have a really late meeting 8 30 I was like well it's for the podcast and I was explaining twee to him and then I was explaining surrealism which is what we're talking about today and he seemed kind of impressed I yeah dads are always like whoa huh because they all want a half long episode (laughs) I mean I think we're impressive because we have full-time jobs but people like have podcasts and do the same thing we do with full-time jobs like by the hundreds of thousands we're not abnormal you know what i mean i just don't know anyone personally right who like has really stuck with it anyway welcome to fascism we spend the first five minutes tooting our own horn um <laughs> i yeah, don't think we we're don't... tooting our own horn our dads your dad just likes us he was impressed yeah. okay <laughs> yeah that's true that's true but yeah we'd love it if you tooted our horn give us five stars on Apple, follow us on Spotify, tell your friends. We're trying to get listeners from every state. So if you know anyone in like South Carolina, Louisiana, I'll just say those two, but there's definitely Why those. That's just what came to mind. And we don't have any listeners there yet. Yeah. I would say Texas, we need, needs to bump its listens up. We've already sure. got Texas though. We do have Texas, but I need more than what we have. It's such a big state. You know, like I just want to reach a solid of 50 so that I can have my theme party. Oh, that's right. Based on everyone dressing up like a state slogan. So to be clear, Hope is waiting for us to have a listener from every state. If that wasn't clear, I just wanted to be sure. So, and Thank then you. we're going to have a party. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just a lot of good costume themes that can come from those slogans. The show me state. I mean, you're excited about that one. What Tennessee is the volunteer state. What am I going to do for that? You could wear, I mean, I have like 
my national parks fleece that has a volunteer patch on it. I mean, it wouldn't be a very sexy costume, but <laughs> that's what I want. I want a sexy costume, a sexy volunteer costume. And you should be like the garden state or yeah. No, but I'd have to be Tennessee because I'm from there. If I know one thing it's about party costumes, it's that you can just dress slutty and have a reason. Yeah. And um, I, and as I get older, the sluttier I want to get, you know how they say you get more conservative. It's a lie. Yeah. I don't know. I've been kind of an exhibitionist my whole life. So that's remained pretty consistent, mm, but your whole life, I mean, like since I was a teen, I guess. Yeah. Although, I mean, I do remember being in hip hop class and we got to wear our costume was like a midriff and my mom would never have dressed me in a midriff, but she like, couldn't really argue because that was just like the costume that was given to us. Yeah. And so I was like, fuck, yeah, I look fucking hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're doing like hip hop moves being like, uh, uh, I could just imagine you like a little Britney Spears up there. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to let my kids do that kind of stuff. I feel like I'm going to be really conservative. This all came up for me while watching Euphoria. But anyway, we're going off <laughs> The deep end. And really, I feel like it should be noted that we, we are, we re-recorded this episode. Yes. The sound was bad and we are just so committed that we decided to re-record. And then after we did that, we recorded our second segment, which is about crossroads trading, which is unionizing at one location. So you're going to hear an interview. This is the intro. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we're doing this like the day after the interview and we're gonna now go into what's trending, Hope. Trending, okay. So I don't know if this is what the phrase spring chicken means, but I feel like a spring chicken. It's, it is spring, right? Yeah, we just yeah. had, we just had the whatever and I just feel like ready to rumble. I like want to see friends again. I went to a party on Friday. I brought two friends to the party. Jackie didn't want to come, but I brought, I mean, Brian and I went and brought two girls and I kept joking that I felt like I had like an offering, you know, like I came, <laughs> I came bearing gifts, which is horrible and sexist, but uh, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> that stuff's funny. So yeah, I'm excited to just like hang out with people. Me and my sister and my friend Jane are going to a bar tomorrow called the doctor's office that just opened. What is that? Why is it, it called a doctor's office? Well, it has like a sign that was alluring to me. Like I kept being like, what is that place? Uh -huh. And then I saw it online. I don't know. It's just like good booze. You have to make a reservation. Oh, and they probably give you shots or something like maybe. the doctor's office. I don't know if it'll be like so like campy, which I mean, I would love it if it was. I think it'll probably be actually more like Bougie. taking itself too seriously. But yeah, but I mean, we've just we've got to take advantage of these like single months in between COVID variants. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. Yeah, I'm like, I guess we're because the mask has lifted and here in Seattle, the mask requirement so people are I just it feels like we're out of it yeah I still feel bad if I forget a mask like I still feel bad I I wear a mask if the workers inside are wearing a mask yeah I think if it's they are then I'm kind of like maybe maybe not but anyway um yeah so I'm just I'm just ready to rumble hit me up love it love it I'm god I knew this question was coming and now I feel like uh it was sprung on me I also feel like, I mean, just something has ignited in me where I'm like, you know what? I could add another thing. I like, I'm like, I shouldn't add another thing to my schedule, but I'm like, I could do that. You know what I mean? Like I could add another thing. No big deal. Like what? What are you going to add? 
Well, like I was like, should I sign up? Like what I was doing was like Googling like workout classes. I'm already working out four times a day, but I was like, you know what? I need to get that fifth one going. Like four really, times a week. Oh yeah. Four times a day would be psychotic. Be yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is fair. And I would not look this way. The way I look is like, I still like a little plump in the way that I am. And this is four day a week body, you know, baby, if I did it four times a day, I would, I, it would, it would, and it still looks like this, this, that would be literally insane. <laughs> oh uh, man. Anyways, I, uh, was just thinking I should add another one just like, cause I really want to meet like a workout people. Like mm -hmm. back in Nashville, I used to have like a class. I didn't like anybody in, in particular. I actually hate everybody that goes to workout classes. It's pretty ironic. Cause I'm just like, Ugh, all you douchebags here I am with you you know but <laughs> I do like the camaraderie in some aspects of it of yeah. everybody cheering each other on being like you can fucking do it and having like feeling guilty if you don't go and like people asking where you were you know <laughs> fake con I don't what know. kind of class was this that you were taking this was like Katie my my bestie back home was the teacher of it so it was kind of like high intensity interval training. It basically was like a CrossFit fit, but not. Yeah, I was gonna say, you're gonna hate the suggestion, but you might try CrossFit. Like if you shopped around and found the right gym. It could I know. I kept on coming back to CrossFit today and I was like, should I do it? Should I do it? Yeah, I was, I've been thinking about it, but then my friend said that you have to take like a, some like intro courses uh -huh. or classes before starting. And I was like, eh. yeah, you got to prove your worth. You get to join any cult, you know, you got to like, you got to really <laughs> commit, but that's like it. I mean, like I started my seeds. I feel like I'm on a really good path. I feel like something's about to bust open. Like something's going to like, I've been doing all the things, you know, um, you're about to reap the rewards. And I, f yeah. And I feel like, you know, we're doing that together. I feel like I'm working out and I'm getting back my health, whatever, like work, like flowers, veggies, the ground is warming up. My, mm -hmm. I don't know. There's just a lot of things happening and I feel things like they're blooming. Yeah. I feel like I'm blooming. That's, is that a good word? Is that a good thing? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it does make me think about going through puberty, but I like it for you at this stage in your life as well. Yeah, I'm blooming. That's what I'm going to say. So that's my theme. I'm yeah, it's definitely springtime. We'll play the interview now. We talked to Emma who works at Crossroads. They are unionizing and we connected with her after seeing one of their posters on the street, found her on Twitter and we all chatted. It was super fun. Oh, just so you know, Crossroads is a consignment store. I sell trade. It's like Buffalo Exchange, if you know that store. So yeah. it's like, I sell my clothes there all the time, like all the time. The, this one in particular is on Broadway next to the Seattle Starbucks. That's also unionizing. And they just unionized, by the way. They just vote, right. they got a vote and they, yeah, so yay. And yeah. when we post this episode, they will, the Crossroads will be voting on that day. So that's really exciting. So yeah, check it out. So we wanted to know about your experience working at Crossroads and kind of like why you guys decided to form a union. Yeah. I think like the most important thing to remember as like a reason for why workers unionize a lot of times 
is because we love working at Crossroads. Like we want to keep working here. We don't want to have to look for other jobs, but like, that's the reality when you aren't paid enough and like you get really worn down and there aren't worker protections. What really motivated us to come together was partially COVID. A lot of us didn't feel we were being included in conversations about COVID protections and didn't really feel like what we were doing was adequate. Also, like safety was a big thing. Like we are very much expected to do a lot to prevent shoplifting. And Mm. um, at times it feels like we're expected to put our safety above merchandise. And another big issue is healthcare. A lot of our workers are supposed to be getting full-time hours, um, but we are not scheduled ever that much. And that prevents us from being able to get healthcare or we just need full-time hours because that's what it takes to pay the bills. um, And we're never scheduled that much um, to begin with. So I was hired under the expectation that I would be getting full-time hours. I have never once in my life at Crossroads been scheduled for a full-time. And how long have you been there? Um, I started in November. Okay. So now like, like everyone else, I have other part-time work that I do, but you know, we did the math and even with, you know, the Seattle minimum wage, if you like do the math of what it would be to make full-time hours, what you would make annually, that's still below the poverty line for our workers. So we just really identified the need Sorry, my cat is like, I actually really quick, sorry to like interrupt the flow, but she's going to meow until I open the door for her. So I just have to do do that really quickly. Georgia, go outside. Fun fact about me and my apartment building, my cat just like wanders the halls with like the other cats and they like go and visit other people's apartments and stuff. And it's just like a cat commune. That's Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I was letting her go enjoy the hallway. Um, and go talk to some neighbors. Okay, sorry, what was I saying? (laughs) Living wage. Yeah, none of us are ever scheduled for full-time hours. So if you do the math of what it would be to get paid for our wage 40 hours a week, like you're still below the poverty line. So like, what do you do with that? You form a union, right? So we kind of started talking, partially inspired by all the unionization that's going on on Capitol Hill, like shout out to Starbucks workers. They actually won their union unanimously today, the location on um, Capitol Hill on Broadway and Denny, I think it is. Um, So that's dope. I love that. Um, so like there's, it, there's huge energy for unions right now. So I think we all capitalized on that. Like we're mostly young, like leftist or super liberal, however you want to like label your, yourself. Like we're all pretty progressive and like on the same page that like unions are good. And uh, yeah, we kind of just started meeting and we filed for an election when we had majority support and our... Uh, vote takes place or it's over on Monday. So we'll get the results on Wednesday. It's a mail-in election, but I am feeling really, really good. Yay. That's awesome to hear. We also were just curious, what is like the hierarchy pay structure at Crossroads? So there is a manager and I'm pretty sure they are salary 
it seems like. Under that, there's two assistant managers. And I don't know the exact pay structure, but the assistant managers work so hard. We did include them in our bargaining unit. We would like for them to be a part of our union. They work so hard. They barely make a couple dollars more an hour, if that, more than us. But most people start at Crossroads around 16 50, I think, or whatever the Seattle minimum wage is. So we start right there. But I mean, if you're living in Seattle, like even like no cost of living increase over the last few years, like it has gotten a lot more expensive to live here. And there's kind of not really an account for that. I totally agree. I think minimum wage should be $26. Like we did a lot of the math. Yeah. It's like $26 should be the minimum wage. Like it's unfortunate that it's not. And yeah. Yeah. So with getting like unionized with your coworkers, uh, I have a little bit of experience of doing this. I only had three other coworkers cool. that I had to unionize with. What was your process of getting people together? It sounds like um, we're on board pretty readily. Yeah. People who had been at the store for a long time were some of the most enthusiastic people to kind of join in. So I, how it kind of started was, I guess, okay, a little bit of background about me is that I work on political campaigns sometimes. And I've always had like a really just strong passion for fashion. That sounds so cheesy to say uh, when you realize how it (laughs) rhymes, but okay. (laughs) Uh, So cheesy. But like I went to fashion camp in high school, like have always loved fashion and just wanted a break from that. But through campaign work was exposed to union jobs and was a part of a campaign workers union. So I kind of knew that like unions were really good and they had personally benefited me. And like, I am really involved in the campaign workers union more than I am in campaign work right now. Cause I'm not on a campaign job. I needed a break and took a retail job that I was excited about. But through that, I like learned about how to unionize all of that and was very open about that because like, that's what I do in the other fraction of my time. When I'm not doing work, I'm often doing union stuff. So people knew I was involved in that because that's what, you know, you talk about what you do during the day at work, past the time. And someone pulled me aside and they're like, you know how to unionize? Like, can you help us do this? Like it's been talked about before someone was really close to doing it. Then they left the store and got a different job. And I was like, are you, are you sure? Because like, are you ready to cause some trouble is basically what I said. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, like if this is what you want to do, like, let's do it. And that night we put together a spreadsheet, like everyone's contact information, and then made a plan to talk to every worker about their issues. So like how, how, so we kind of like assigned ourselves like, okay, you're working with this person, like talk, like ask them how they like working here, find out if they have any thoughts about the Starbucks down the street unionizing. Um, So we just started canvassing workers and taking notes on a spreadsheet. Then when we kind of figured out like kind of what issues people shared in the workplace and where they generally stand on like favorability towards unions, then we started making it clear that we were 
you know, we wanted to unionize and everyone was just really enthusiastic. Like it really did not take much persuasion. Like some people like shout out to the workers who like push through like really tough persuasion conversations. But like, that was not this, like everyone was like, yes, like we need a union. Let's do it. And there's just so much enthusiasm for it right now. Like it's so awesome seeing what's happening across the country. Yeah. Um, and, and what's possible. You're just it such really a, was, sorry. I'm just like, so impressed. You're such a handy dandy tool for them. Cause it yeah. is, I think the hardest part is like, you're like, okay, I'm going to Google how to union. Like when I first started, yeah. organizing, I was like, where do I even start? So you were just, you were really there pulling it through being that resource. I am so glad, but like, I also want to like give a shout out to like all the workers who have like helped me do this because they were so ready and like, they are a lot of them like born leaders in this and like, they just needed the information, which is like part of the reason why we need the pro act and like pro labor policies. So like workers know what's possible. So it's not this like huge investigation into like how to union right it should be super super easy right right and so when you brought it to when you when you like revealed to your the management and whoever that you were doing this what was their reaction okay so this actually happened in a really crazy way we were planning to like So we are planning to file for a union election. We never, some unions will ask for, or organizing unions will ask for voluntary recognition if they think their management will be supportive. We knew that our employer had done union busting before, Mm -hmm. um, so they weren't going to be supportive. So we went straight to filing for an election. So they were going to get notified once we filed. So we were going to present them with like a letter as kind of like, an explainer like hey like here's what's happening and here's why then there was a really bad safety incident with one of our security guards and like it really got down to the root of the issue of like we are expected to put merchandise over safety and like our security guard was actually hospitalized and it really just like shook everyone. And like, we just decided unanimously, like when that happened, like it's time to file now, we're not waiting another day. Like they need to know that like we want a say in our circumstances at work. Um, So we filed the next day and just didn't give them an explanation. Yeah, it seems like at that point it's it's clear. Yeah, it's clear. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And they have not been happy. They have tried to like pretend to be impartial and just like have their union busting lawyers come in and do the dirty work. But like they've taken out the like union busting playbook and they're just doing it. But I'm confident we'll win. By union busting, are they like adding people to your numbers to like overthrow the vote? Fortunately, they can't do that um, because the agreement, the election agreement, um, basically the week that they they capture a week. um, So the week that we filed is any like one who was working on that schedule that week is like eligible to vote. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So they because of our agreement. 
uh, with the labor relations board are not able to do that. I'm not sure totally the details of why some other union elections capture like a much later date, but ours was for the week that we filed. And that was like great for us. So what are um, these union busting techniques? Because I, I feel like a lot of people hear young union busting and they're not sure what that totally so it looks different everywhere but what they started doing for us was they brought in union consultants and we had to like look up their names and like really investigate because the consultants were really like unclear to us like where they were even coming from but what we found out is they are from this firm called jackson lewis which is like apparently a notorious union busting law firm and like six hundred dollars an hour like something crazy i mean lawyers are expensive but like crazy expensive and they came in and basically took workers two by two and gave like a presentation that was very biased about what unions do and said very misleading things things to just like discourage people from thinking it's possible like well crossroads doesn't even have to like negotiate in good faith so like even if you win a union like they can refuse to negotiate just like really nasty kind of blows yeah which just isn't also true but um so they started with those meetings then they so oh I should mention when we filed for an election our manager resigned so in place of our manager they had a bunch of like corporate people come in so there was a lot of like corporate surveillance that became really convenient then everyone met with like the first employee that crossroads ever hired and this woman basically was just like this company loves women this company loves queer people like vote no (laughs) what like this is like who are you like you're not a good messenger because we don't know who you are and like who doesn't even work there anymore like yeah it was very weird and and that was I guess their strategy um so basically they've communicated to us very clearly that they want us to vote no some union materials that were like brought into the break room mysteriously disappeared they (sighs) took they like threw away all of our birthday cards in the break room, took down some of our pride flags and took away our couch, which sucks because the chairs in there now are really uncomfortable. I just feel but like it's so funny how like, corporations like, get me. Like they're just trying to do like little things to get yeah. at morale. And like, there have been times where it's like work, you know what I mean? But like, at the end of the day, like, we're going to be stronger once we have this union. Yeah, it just it totally does suck. But I do want to be clear, like, we're not asking people to not shop at Crossroads. Like, we have power because we're the most profitable store in the country. So that because we bring in so much money, like, it gives us a lot of power. Um, So we totally like love our store. We want people to shop there and sell their clothes. Mm-hmm. We just want a living wage and like a say in our working conditions. Yeah. I mean, that all makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, it's pretty obvious, you know, <laughs> <laughs> 
Have y'all connected with like other workers in Crossroads, speaking of locations? and Yeah, so there is another store in UW and they were kind of just more interested in watching us do our thing. Um, it's a much smaller store with a different dynamic, but I did just travel to California to visit family and I went shopping at Crossroads in California, of course, one of the many locations because the company's based in California. And I was like, hey, did you guys like here at my store, we're like unionizing and they had no idea. So part of the company's strategy is like keeping it super hush hush. So I think there's a lot of opportunity because like the people I told were like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, uh, hopefully there will be more to come. Yeah. And so was the person that you were meeting with before this, was that meeting related to what's happening at Crossroads? Yeah. So basically there was an event for the labor community with secretary Marty Walsh, who is the U S labor secretary appointed by Biden. And he's, I guess, traveling the country right now, like meeting with labor folks all over. Um, and the union that we're organizing with UFCW 3000, um, asked me to come and be on like the panel to share my experience organizing. So that was really, really cool. So that's what I just came from. And that's so cool. Yeah. I felt very important. It was very fun. Um, but it was so much pressure getting dressed because I was like, I'm representing a fashion store. Like I have to look so cute. Uh, but um, yeah, so, but I put together an outfit of everything that I've gotten at Crossroads, which is nice. a lot. Um, yeah. yeah One sure. of the many benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, I definitely want to keep that. That is yes. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Discount. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm interested. Were there other unions at this meeting as well? Like Yeah, it was so it was like hosted by what's uh MLK Labor Council, which is basically like it's like a family of unions in the uh, King County area. Um, it's like a network of them all. Um, so it was hosted by the labor council. So there was all different unions, including UFCW 3000, which is the one that we're organizing with, but yeah, there were like all different unions, Teamsters, IBEW. That's the one I'm a part of. IBEW 89, local 89. Was that the one that was there? Cause that's the one that's in Seattle, I think. Um, oh my gosh, wait, I'm so excited to hear that you are a part of local 89 because (laughs) I'm organizing with campaign workers and we are currently reaffiliating with IBEW local 89 in place of our old union. So I'm going to be also a member of IBEW 89 in the next couple months. Oh, hell yeah. I have, I'm very proud of that place. I love that. Yeah. We're in negotiations right now. And if you ever meet a guy named Richard. That's my boy. I don't know. Richard, I was you know Richard just had a meeting with Richard yesterday. <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna tell yes. him. I'm gonna tell him He's that. So great. Yeah. Yeah. So I do like I work at Crossroads and then I also do like political campaign work. Yeah. Um so campaign workers are unionizing with IBEW 89 right now. Wow, what a small world. It is I a very small world. Richard is so sweet. He was like He's great. He's got because, me out of okay, trouble. so we were we were a union of campaign workers with IUPAT, uh, which is the painters union. Mm-hmm. And basically there was some beef and they decided they were going to get rid of our local of campaign workers, which was like really shitty. And now IBEW came to us and Richard was like, 
we just want to take you in under our arms, like yeah. let oh you guys know everything's going to be okay. And then let you guys keep organizing. And Aww. I was like, thank you so much, Richard. Yeah. He's, he's like, so great. Yeah. He's, he's been our savior and it's weird. Cause he's like the one white guy that's in this whole thing that we're dealing with. And I'm like, I'm looking up. He's just, yeah. He's just like, I'm looking yeah. and advising to this one white guy and I trust him more than I trust like a lot of these gay women that I'm dealing with. Anyway, it's just yeah. very interesting. It's just like, Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> but he Shout is, out to Richard. I know Richard's uh, and he's also been in got, the game for so long. Like, I wonder how many workers he's unionized. Yeah. He's probably unionized, like probably like 10,000 workers, maybe I'm more. Sure. And he's like so good at negotiation too. It's impressive. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he also, I got a like performance. I'm getting off topic, but I got a PIP because I like lost my cool. And he like came in and was like my lawyer, basically. It was amazing. He was just like talking yeah. about my thing. And I was like, oh, this is what unions do, you know? But like, I was yeah. just like, oh, it, it felt like it just feels really nice to have someone on your side and especially in those yeah. situations where you're like yeah and what that's called that's called your wayne garten yes right. yes your I, right to have a representative in any circumstance that could result in discipline or losing your job exactly uh, we love to see it in action exactly so uh, for those that are wondering if you ever get called to hr you can just call your union rep if you're having a one-on-one -on -one meeting and you feel uncomfortable about it call your union rep i mean like you, that's what the wine garden rule is and i thought it's not spelled like wine garden like i thought it was it's like <laughs> it's like wing garden yeah. yeah so what is the what are you, part of the process are you at currently so you're you're gonna vote soon right yes so we are um, in the voting stage so that will end on monday that's the last day to get our ballots in we'll get the results this wednesday um so wednesday the 30th when voting ends the 28th after voting so like let's assume that we win then there'll be a bargaining period that will be agreed upon and we'll go into bargaining with the employer. So there's a lot of union busting that can actually happen after you win your election. So delaying of the bargaining process is a big one. And that's something that honestly, I'm expecting, but, you know, we'll see time will tell. And then um, bargaining is, as you know, what you're doing right now is basically negotiation of your contract and fighting for those wins that you and your workers stood together for. Yeah. Did you, did your employer come to the table immediately or did they delay? They, okay. So I work for Recompose. Have you ever heard of Recompose? I haven't. So but if it's shopping, I'll definitely be looking into it. <laughs> it's not shopping. Oh. We actually, okay. it's very much not shopping. We compost human remains. That is what I do. Oh. Yeah. It's like. That's so cool. <laughs> it is in theory and practice less cool. But Katrina Spade pushed this campaign of composting human remains out of her, like out of her thesis. And she is this queer gay like woman that's part of like. Mm -hmm this really cool group of people that are considered chosen family and Dean Spade. Do you know who Dean Spade is? Mm -mm. He wrote Mutual Aid. They're all part of this very okay. progressive community. Yes. And they push this identity of being very progressive as a company and they're not, they're not progressive. Mm. And that's the harm you do with having a company. Like you can't be progressive and honestly be a company. It's really yeah. Well, like capitalism always comes first, right? Like right. And 
it's also like unless you're paying everybody equal wages you're just there's just no way of making the hierarchy system isn't going to hold up mm -hmm. to your progressiveness and yeah so i thought maybe i was like maybe this is the job for me because this maybe i find found the person that has some similar ideals to me and it was not but because of the a pr that they present they knew they couldn't stall they knew they couldn't mm. union bust so we got it as soon as possible and then like they voluntarily recognized us and then oh great so it was easy peasy in that way i mean it was not easy on a lot of other ways but yeah, yeah. so yeah and getting to the table they did all the things that they had to do uh to not make a a fuss um but we've been like contemplating if we should have a twitter or instagram kind of talking about the issues but anyways <laughs> yeah so they yeah. were very cool that's um, awesome i mean i'm sure it was really challenging in other ways but it's nice when companies give in to their progressive ideals that they put forth to have our yeah. companies like we're progressive like yeah. we love gay people but like you don't get a living wage yeah um exactly it's yeah it is very interesting it's like never trust the pr you know just never trust it mm -hmm. it's, it's like unless there's a union because it's always the people that are going to make the change it's never going to be a company and it, i fell for it though and i think every all my coworkers fell for it and that's why we were all yeah. very liberal so we were all like we can't fucking do like this is not yeah this is not going to work for us this is not what we had in mind so yeah we're also pushing for a four-day work week just so you know 32 that hours amazing i, I want to spread the be... message <laughs> what if we just like what yeah we should organize that should be like a top labor priority uh, that's what i'm saying because Honestly. like a lot of countries are doing it like i want that in america but no yeah yeah we don't I get anything good no health care nothing i know i know dude but that is in our negotiations we're actually doing 34 hours i mean they're they're pushing hard but i'm like i don't know what's i mean like we're gonna push harder i don't know like this is this is where it yeah. kind of breaks down you know anyways oh oh i so wish or i so hope for you that you get that that would I do be too. amazing i i'm also just like what's the harm in just giving it to us you know like yeah like we could workers something. actually do better when they're well rested too There's like and like have time to live happy and fulfill lives outside of work yeah there's no con there's literally none so there's so many pros in the sense of like environmentally physically psychologically even like financially there's just like mm -hmm. no reason not to it's just so, so hard for people to change it's like we we cling to the 40-hour work week as if it was like written in our constitution which even if it was i'd still be like no thanks but it's just like this was just a thing that someone came up with at some time like why does this happen yeah it's like we've done all this work with technology and whatnot thinking like oh it's gonna make our lives easier but we keep just trying to come up with stuff for us to do all day. Yeah. yeah. It's it's entirely pointless. I, okay, so one question, because I asked my coworkers too, I was like, what do you want me to ask Crossroads union people? And one of their questions is, how do you get public support? So, what I mean, you found me via poster. So, like, that is a very classic, like, old school way that I think, like, should not be overlooked i think it really serves its purpose having a social media presence i believe pick one platform and do it well rather than like try to be everywhere 
and just engage in the labor community and post regularly because that's the key to Twitter. And it like happened really naturally. And I like hate to make it sound easy, but like the key to Twitter is just post regularly, engage with other people and like find a community. And like the labor community is so engaged that people were so eager and excited to support. It just like, we got a lot of followers really quickly. So it happened, It what feels really organically, but something that really helps is having an ask. Um, and so we had an ask that we really pushed out on social media and it's still available. It's a pinned tweet on our account. It's just at Crossroads Union. And you can send an email to our CEO and district manager and tell them to stop union busting and to ask them to basically play fair. So something that like really helped us get the public engaged was just like having an ask, having a way that they can participate. Um, So that's something that I really encourage anyone who's like in a union drive themselves. Like if you want to get the public engaged, like have something tangible that they can do and feel like they're a part of helping you win your union. Yeah, that's good advice. That's um, really good advice. Also, though, do who tweets every day? Is it you, Emma, or is it just somebody else? Like, are y'all trading off? I, I, yeah, so I'm not the only one on the account, but I definitely go through it every day. I love to be, like, extremely online, but, like, not on my personal accounts. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's me and other people have the account, too. But, yeah, that's and what we do. What are some of the labor groups that you're talking about? Because I want to be a part of the labor community. I feel like I'm, like, Joining the union has been great, but I'm also like, where are the other people? Where are my people my age? Yeah. So what I would do is I would like follow local unions. Like there's like IBEW, mm-hmm. UFCW 3000. There's the MLK Labor Council. There's SEIU. And you'll start to like get a vibe for what the discourse is. And like, then you can, it'll start like prompting you on like other accounts. I can't think of any just like straight up. Oh my God, you have to follow George the cat. Can you cut it and have me say, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. We'll make it sound like that was the first thing out of your mouth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kidding. Um, so George the cat is a cat that went viral basically for being like a silly cat in the workplace. Um, And as it turns out, like whoever runs Jorts's account is like a big, just like labor person that goes super hard. They like tweet about Starbucks all the time. They've retweeted us like, like also like political discourse around, you know, what's happening as it relates to unions and all of that. So Jorts the Cat is the hottest new labor Twitter account to follow. Of course, course, that's the poster child. (laughs) Yes. I love that. I love that so much. That is, that is like a, like where we are at in society in 2022, like labor rights. There's a cat that is the leader and online, Mm -hmm. you know, like it just makes perfect sense. And I think someone made like a Jorts the Cat, like logo, like collab with the Starbucks Workers United logo and it was like a paw instead of a fist it was so awesome (laughs) I want to see that so just scroll through that account you'll have a lot of joy and solidarity 
Yeah. Have you heard of Emergency Workplace Organization Committee? It's done by through like Democratic Social Socialists of America. That's how I've definitely I heard of that. I'm not familiar with it, but I definitely know generally what you're talking about. And DSA Labor, like in Seattle, their committee like reached out to us and has been super helpful too. Cool. Okay. So they're good now. people. Yeah. 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 DSA I, Labor, that's a good account to follow too. Yeah. I, I need to start Googling this. I need to figure out, I'm not on Twitter. So I'm just like, don't know. And Hope was on for a few weeks, but got in too many fights. <laughs> I care. Yeah. I don't think Twitter is the, the place for me. <laughs> I totally get that. You will see a lot of stupid, stupid takes. Yeah. And for me, I like, will really, I really enjoy going down the rabbit hole of like, this person is so dumb. Did they, let me see what they tweeted last week. Like, and so like, I really enjoy it, but I won't say anything. I just like silently work. <laughs> yeah. That seems like the best way to do it. I think that's the best way for sure. Yeah. Sounds like you've had a long day. We won't keep you too long, but I'm just curious, like in the beginning, you were talking about how you guys love Crossroads and the whole point of this is to keep working at Crossroads. Like, what is your vision for what Crossroads could be moving forward? Like, it seems like it's a, it can be a jumping off point for people who want to get into fashion. It seems like you guys have a mm -hmm. lot of knowledge and do a lot for the store. So was that a question? Yeah, <laughs> no, but I get what you're getting at. So like, so many of our workers are like in school for fashion right now or like want to go into fashion or are artists in their free time and like how amazing would it be if like artists could work at the store and also like have a living wage and have enough time to do their art and like for like our fashion students to like have the exposure and to you know if retail is the environment that they want to work in in fashion like have a path towards management like we didn't really dive into this but one area of like frustration is how promotions like happen in the store um so like workers having a path to like being the manager of like a really cool uh, like retail spot, like where you are like helping the environment by like preserving fashion and like recycling it. And also like doing, putting together really cute mannequins, like making really cool outfits work, like doing all that fashion stuff you love. Like we want it to be a place where like people can do the things that they love, um, but also like survive. Um, because that's just not where people are at right now. People are pinching pennies. Yeah. Yeah. Doing what you love and surviving, man. That's the goal, right? Like, yeah, if I, only capitalism would let us have it. It's just so unfair sometimes because people know that they can take advantage of people with dreams, you know, mm -hmm. and I just feel like that fashion's just one of those industries that's like people, they know that people will do anything just to be a part of it. And it's just mm -hmm. like, people need to eat as well. It's not a, yeah lively it's like it's just hard um so what are some of the asks that you're you guys are trying to push for, for yeah this? so you can um go to i think it's you can go to bit.ly slash crossroads workers and you can send an email to our CEO and district manager and tell them we have a pre-written email. So it's really just like a couple clicks and you're good to go. Tell them to not union bust and to play fair and basically help us demonstrate that like the community supports us. You can also like come into the store, like tell 
like the workers like hey I heard you're unionizing like that's so awesome like you can talk to us like we appreciate the solidarity and one thing okay this isn't like an official ask yet but one thing that just like came up as an idea today that I think we're going to talk about is like asking people that have union t-shirts to like bring in to sell their union t-shirts so we can like show management like because like the workers are the ones who take in the clothes like show management like that we have a lot of union support and solidarity. Um, so that's something like, I don't know if you have a cool union t-shirt, bring it in maybe. I have a union um, pin. I'm going to ask Richard for a bunch of union shirts is what I'm going to do. I'll do that. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Richard. What a good guy. Yeah. Richard will come through. He is all about it. Yeah. That's such a fun. I love that. I love that strategy. I do too. It's got, you know, fashion in it a fashion exactly yeah you you know what you're talking about this is like you oh thank you about this before this was yeah I feel like we got some good info yeah yeah this was super fun um I appreciate just letting a stranger on your podcast (laughs) yeah we're still new at this like talking to other people besides me and help so uh yeah you got to see the see the process before your eyes that you're like one of our first people that we talked to so oh my gosh well I am honored yeah have a good rest of your night all right bye Emma bye here we go okay so getting into our main topic of the day which is surrealism So this is something I knew nothing about before researching it, but shout out to Decorating Dissidents, which is just such a cool website that talks about craft and art and fashion. And that's how I got the idea for this, for this topic. And the main character of this story of surrealism and fashion is Elsa Schiaparelli, whose design legacy lives on through her design house, the design house that that bears her name, which reopened in 2013. But to set the stage, I'm gonna give a brief background about surrealism. So the roots, we've talked about Dadaism here and surrealism came after Dadaism. So Dadaism was in reaction to the horrors of World War One. It involved a lot of satire, biting commentary on the foolishness of war and absurdism. And surrealism had some of these elements such as absurdism, right, you would say? I mean, I think that was their main thing was absurdism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's all aesthetic, right? Like, Well, they had philosophy. Oh, well, which, which also, I have been meaning to talk about this, which is that, like, the word aesthetic doesn't just mean surface things. It, can, it also means, like, the philosophy behind something. Mm-hmm. So an aesthetic, yeah, ha- has both, like, an underlying philosophy and a outward It's deeper than, than we've been using it. Yeah, I think a lot of people now, including myself, use the word aesthetic to just mean, like, dress and makeup and whatever. But it can mean, like, yeah, kind of like the ethos or the vibe behind something. Like, just a second. For your sound, by the way, your computer, it's going to be fine. Just so you know, we know that... Should we play it back? Yeah. It's like, yeah. it has to rev up to, to record. Yeah, do you remember when I was really defensive about how loud my computer was? It was when I got the first 
I first, I got my first yoga computer, which I do not recommend them. I had so many problems with mine. Yeah. Brie got hers, and then you got one, and I got one, and then we all... We all got one. ...had so many problems, but I, my first one that I got made really loud noises, and everyone would comment on it, and I was like, this is normal, it's totally normal, <laughs> but then I took it to the shop, and they were like, yeah, no. The, yeah, yours is broken. Mine, my computer right now is a yoga, and it has been nothing but kind to me, knocking on wood, um... But, you know, yes, I've had a lot of problems. I had to get a new one because it just stopped working and the old one did. Um, yeah. R.I.P. my warranty. Yeah. Um, okay, so somehow surrealism attracted some real ego boys because by 1924 there were two rival surrealist gangs and they got in a literal <laughs> fight, like duking it out. Like they got in a literal physical fight and then they also duked it out in their manifestos. I think... That is the most douchiest thing I've ever heard. Just because, like, what are they, West Side Story? I just imagine like them being bros. like, yeah. yeah. Being like, 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 you got my hair, dude. Like, also, just, that's not a problem. It's just, like, the idea of them trying to show their masculinity through a, a lens of surrealism. Is, and, yeah, and wanting to be the winning manifesto and have everyone just, like, follow your ideas. It's so bro-y and so white male I They're ruining everything. Anyways, yeah, go over yourself. So, and Andre Breton won the fight. His manifesto became the one that people referenced. And he laid out some sort of rules, you know, tips and tricks for surrealists. And the manifesto was written with a lot of absurdist humor in the style of Dadaism, which I'm kind of like curious how that sounds. Like, how do you write a manifesto that has like humor? Yeah. Was Andrea Breton, (laughs) was he French? Because that feels like a very French thing to do. Be like, my humor is absurdist. Sorry. Yeah, he was French. Yep, he was. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't good. Let me just tell you. It probably wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about your French accent. No, it, that too. But, I, you know. It probably wasn't that funny. Yeah, it wasn't like a knee slapper. No, it was like, it makes you think, you know. And then you're just like, get over yourself. Like, I'm already annoyed with the men in the surrealism. It just reminds me of Kanye or something, where they think they're doing something. His is more, like, meta. Yeah, so in his definition of surrealism, um, psychic automism was in its pure state, so by which one proposes to express verbally by means of the written word or in any other manner the actual functioning of thought. So it's very, like, stream of consciousness. So it's dictated by thought in the absence of any control exercised by reason, exempt from any aesthetic or moral concern, which is, like, problematic, right? It almost feels like they're excusing themselves from being canceled because they're like, I'm just... What's streaming out of my brain is free from moral concern. It's all just about, like, letting it come out. And, like, like that was that's a style of art that's used in other movements, I think, which is you just let things spew out on onto the paper. It's not supposed to be planned. It's very re- connected to the dream realm. Like, they were... Surrealists were constantly trying to, like, access their dreams and channel their dreams to, to fuel their art. And so surrealism was supposed to be a super reality composed of a dream and waking life. Wait, was this around the young young yeah they were very well they were very inspired by is it young or uh young which he's also kind of a douche they're all kind of douchey also i feel like a lot of this keeps to the conversation it keeps them out of the conversation of being being like you you know how people are like let's hold our artists accountable like and people are like you have to separate the art from the artist oh yeah okay so it was the time of freud so oh when well is, that's young too yeah. it's the same time okay. yeah um, they were like partners at some point they both like wanted to have sex with their 
clients. Freud went, yeah, like, that's pretty much all they did was have sex with their clients. And I don't know why we take them at all seriously, but anyways. That's horrible. Yeah, so... That's yeah, I was very influenced by by that, by like the kind of like burgeoning field of psychology or whatever. There's also an ethos of nonconformity at the crux of of surrealism, and most of them are communists. But enter Salvador Dali, who fully sucks. I think that was actually referenced in Euphoria. What I mean, one of the characters, I think Jules, was was seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and they show her there's like a Dali up in the office, and she's like, I thought that Dali was supposed to be like a real predator or something. Which yeah. I'm like, oh my god, Dali being a horrible person is like hitting mainstream. Yeah, let's spread it. Let's yeah. keep spreading the news. Yeah, and so Vice published an article talking about Dali um, as being an openly obnoxious man who willfully claimed necrophilia, cruelty to animals and people, fascism, um, not the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> um, self-obsession and greed. And basically his whole manifesto, his whole like autobiography is about sexually assaulting women, abusing animals. He talks about kicking his three-year-old sister in the head, like <sighs> like premeditated. So he was like, it's all for shock and awe. It all, it, yeah, it's for shock. Yeah, he's like trying to be edgy, but also does seem to be truly vile. Yeah, well, just like the fact that he gets off from the idea of people viewing him as a terrible person is already, makes you a terrible person. Yeah, he supported fascist leaders, which which is what got him kicked out of the surrealist group by Andre Breton. He supported fascist leaders. Mm-hmm. I think like he did a painting for someone, and he also just like openly was in support of of them politically. What the fuck? Yeah. So um, that's like Kanye being for Trump. Not to go back to Kanye, but like, well, it is interesting because it's like we do have those talks about. Or I guess there, I, I feel like there is some sort of debate about whether artists should be exempt from their political views, like whether we should just appreciate their art or whether like yeah, separating the artist from the art. Yeah, and I I think it's complicated, and I hate, but I hate that's even a topic. I'm like, no, we need to hold it's men, men accountable, and J.K. Rowling, <laughs> men and J.K. Rowling accountable for their actions it's not that we have to get dismiss their art as a whole but like yeah it's we still need to look at through like they're creating an art through a lens and i mean if dolly and it's obvious that dolly is not a good person so he's exploiting people that and, and taking advantage and using women as muses and like all this stuff and doing horrible things it's going to be through his work as well like Right, and I think, like, the results also speak to that because surrealism involved a lot of, like, images of brutalized women, like, delimbed and, like, super-sexualized and in submissive positions. And so it's it's not just that it, you can't really separate their views from the art because exactly. their art expressed their views. But I agree, it's nuanced. Like, it makes me think of, like, Ariel Pink, who got, like, canceled for going to a Trump rally. And I know it was more than that. Like, I think he was trying to be... Like, a bit of an edgelord about it. Oh, I don't remember. I remember his name coming up, and I remember being interested for, like, a split second. Yeah, it's like, I like one of his songs, so whatever. But I also just kind of, like, okay, and briefly, it's come up for me with The Bachelor, too, because people get, like, quote-unquote canceled for being, like, shown to be Trump supporters. And I'm like, how are you making this show about monogamy and heteronormativity, and then you're going to act as though it's shocking that someone on the show supports Trump? Exactly. And it's also, like... Supporting a political party, it's just hard. It's like, what, are we going to cancel? Are we not going to feature half the country in any media? Like, Well, I think it's like, uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, like, there are a lot of people. It's also romanticizing. 
the bachelor thing is one thing because it's clearly dedicated to a certain group of people mm-hmm. that believe in Christianity values mm-hmm. and believe in a look and style that it is for the male gaze and is like yeah white supremacist yeah completely white supremacist so like yeah to be shocked is weird because it's just like obviously it's for those group of people that align with a lot of Trump mm-hmm. things so that's one thing so there are but I think it's just like yeah, you have a good point of, of, like, should we not involve Trump supporters in our media? But, like, that that one, The Bachelor, is geared for that group of people. Yeah. I, I don't think we're not doing it. It's just, it's just, like... It's just weird to me that people, people are shocked and that, like, they act like it's a cancelable offense. And I'm like, you can... But then again, it's like, in the case of Dolly supporting a fascist leader, it's like, it does feel right that he got kicked out of the surrealist group because they are, exactly they were a group of people who were, I mean, it was, you know, an aesthetic in the philosophical term. Like, they were working towards a shared ethos, like, a shared belief. And so... And I think it was more against, I mean, it was against the culture itself, which was fascist. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I don't know that, like, mainstream culture was fascist. Uh, Italian leader at that time was... And I think there were certain, like, you know, French people are always like, fascist, everything's fascist, which, you know, by the way, it, it probably is. But uh, it was definitely a culture of, of that time that Dadaism and Surrealism existed was to be against whatever mainstream, like, whatever political at, at, at power. Like you said, it's like, like a reaction. Non-conformity. Yeah. And to be for these kind of things would be just... And you'd be a normal dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that which in overall is the most shocking thing. What's the most shocking thing? I mean, if you are like pro fascist, that means you're like just a you're just as dumb as the regular person. So that would be shocking within that culture. I guess I would have I would want to do more research before making a statement myself about this because I don't know what the political climate of France was at the time. Like, I don't know what, what the dominant belief was. I don't yeah. know if most people supported who or what. Well, this is right after World War One, mm-hmm. so Which I, is, like, a war I feel like it's so boring, no one ever can remember what happened. <laughs> no, I can remember what happened, slightly. I, I know some guy, some Austrian dude shot, or, no, some Austrian prince got shot by some dude. That's all I know. Sounds like you have things pretty down. But I feel like that's... And there was a guy in his name and then, like, the whole war. And then there were trenches and a lot of people lost limbs and got, like, gross feet. Right. I'm, ne- right. I'm nailing Yeah, it. that doesn't do much for me political climate-wise, but I do remember, yeah, gangrene. A gangrene. Um, I, I, political climate-wise, I just know Dadaism existed and came out of it, came out of it, out of a reaction. they were very anti-war. They were also, like, against the patriarchy, mm-hmm. which is, of course, been, was very established in, that, in Europe and still is now. But Yeah. I guess my question remains of whether fascism reflected the dominant culture. But anyhow, Dali, the same time, basically, they got he got kicked out of the Surrealist group. He also got kicked out of college. And he seems just like an art bro to me. Like, one of his paintings is called Atmospheric Skull Sodomizing a Grand Piano. And I'm just like, this literally sounds like a college kid, like, trying to brag to his friends about, like, the things he can do with his dick. I don't know. It's like, so... Yeah. And he wasn't... And, and like, a lot of surrealist art was very, like, kind of, like, repulsed by women. And he wasn't... So he wasn't the only one, but we'll just, like, put him on blast anyway. He has an essay called The New Colors of Spectral Sex Appeal, published in 1934, where he prophesied that the sexual attractiveness of modern women would derive from, quote, the disarticulation and distortion of her anatomy, 
New and uncomfortable anatomical parts, artificial ones, will be used to accentuate the atmospheric feeling of a breast, buttock, or heel. I don't even know what that means. But honestly, it kind of feels like he predicted plastic surgery. Yeah. It is really interesting because there's like this dismemberment component of surrealism, which, but also it seems like he's saying, yeah, we're going to start mutilating our bodies in order to accentuate our parts yeah i mean i think it's an easy prediction to make if if there's a possibility of being able to make a woman look like an ideal candidate for male importance Mm -hmm. it was going to happen because we lived in a culture that was focused on male like attention it was focused on male appreciation so i think that it's just like a pretty predictable one when it comes to if he's like of course we're going to have fake shit to ma- to accentuate boobies. Yeah, I don't know. For, like, it's still, it's eerie to me in a weird way. Like, <laughs> um, And then I don't know if this is a direct quote or not, but it says, she would appear a luminous paradox, animate and inanimate, carnal and ghostly, perfect for being desired and for being painted, but not for creating an art of her own. Which is like, yeah, basically what surrealism is. Like was a lot of times like when men were making the art was that it was like all about this like being a sexual object but also have no having no sexual agency like all of these dichotomies where it was we'll get more to it but anyhow I mean um, that's what a muse is too yes yeah and so this sort of like human but not human theme of surrealism is also seen with the use of mannequins and so to me this is where we see surrealism start to engage with fashion in a way so mannequins were kind of like a symbol of modern life it confused, this is a quote, it confused the boundaries between animate and inanimate, human and machine, male and female, the sexualized and the sexless, and ultimately life and death. It was simultaneously a commodity, a simulacra, an erotic, an erotic object, and the embodiment of the uncanny. And so I read this book, The Surreal Body, by, is that Ghislaine or Ghislaine? Ghislaine? It's Ghislaine. The only reason I know that is because of Ghislaine Maxwell? Yeah, but when I call her Gizzy Lane. Got it. Um, okay, Ghislaine Wood, or Ghislaine. <laughs> Wait, so it's Ghislaine? And it's, I think, I don't actually know now. I'm like, because I've always made the joke about calling her Ghislaine. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is that the entire time I was reading this book, I kept being like, is this by Ghislaine Maxwell? <laughs> and then I kept being like, no, 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 she's the bad one. But it's okay, this is called <laughs> The Surreal Body. What if she did write this, though? <laughs> yeah. And so it's about the connections between fetish surrealism and fashion. So I'm going to quote it a lot, but surrealism, I'm quoting, eroded boundaries between masculine and feminine, reality and then imaginary, horror and fantasy, and the body. It's combined cultural, social, and sexual connotations. Surrealism was the site upon which these transgressions acquired meaning. So a lot of surrealists were incorporating mannequins in their work. They would create sculptures with them or just like arrange them in weird positions and take photos of them, or they would use them in motifs and actually like paint images of mannequins and this like really came to a head in 1937 the pavilion de l'excellence um an exhibit at um like an art exhibition um should i try to say this in french yeah try and then it's funny and the exposition inter internationale des arts et techniques i don't know it's like a modern technology art um, exposition that took place in Paris. I feel like you did not have enough heart into that. Well, it just was such a long name. <laughs> and I don't, I, it really you're is. right, you're right. I biffed, I biffed. 
Um, and so this is a big moment for surrealism and heavily featured the use of mannequins. They were arranged in evocative poses, meant to elicit feelings of discomfort. There was this whole like part of the ex exhibit that featured mannequins and a lot of people were using plaster, which was previously looked down on as a material. Like people just thought it wasn't a very cool art material, but a lot of people for this exhibit used it to sculpt figures into these like tragic silhouettes that were intentionally devoid of any pleasantness, the gentleness that usually go with elegance. They would be in kind of like defensive, frightened poses with featureless faces, badly balanced bodies. Basically one of them had like gnarly cankles. Was this mostly done by men? Was there a woman mm -hmm. that was at least? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So Scaparelli had a mannequin in this exhibit. Her mannequin was nude, but a lot of the people's mannequins were outfitted in garments from like the leading couture houses. So it was like an interesting thing where it was like these artists being involved and then also it was fashion. It was also capitalism. Definitely that. And an elitist. Like yeah. it's all fancy stuff. And the photos from this exhibit, like also someone recalled that it almost like looked like Pompeii because like all of these mannequins were kind of like crawling on the ground, looking scared, like they were about to get covered by like volcanic eruption. Uh -huh. And so... Yeah, and that was like the most recent activity that happened. I'm joking because it's like, it was 1930. I know that happened like way yeah, before. Yeah, when? And, you know, <laughs> you know, the 1200s. I don't, I think it happened in, I don't, I really don't know. It could be t between like Jesus time up to like 1700s and I would, that's like... Right. I would not, none of those dates would surprise me. <laughs> but so the photos from this exhibit were actually published in like Harper's Bazaar and Vogue. There's a German photographer named something Walls who he did the photos for this and he would, he did it like at night and did like really extreme lighting so that the photos had this like really intense look to them. And yeah, I just think it's interesting that like those photos were being published in Vogue. But then in 1938, just a year later, there's another surrealist exhibit exhibition featuring mannequins, also in Paris. And this was organized by Breton, the one that had the like winning manifesto. Dali was also involved. He was a technical advisor. And one section of this exhibition was a corridor that was lined with 16 shop window mannequins, each dressed by a different artist. It became the most famous section of the exhibition. People compared it to the red light district because, you know, it's like these just these like this alley of women. There was a, there was like this sexualization of, of the process of dressing the mannequins, like this like power of like, I don't know, like dressing her up however you want. Of the 16, only one was dressed like a man. And it just feels like, yeah, cause like what's, what's interesting to people about that? It's like, it really shows that so much of it was about power and like submissiveness and like fetishization. Yeah, um, I mean, this, it's just like, of course this is ran by mostly men. I don't know, it's just like, this is the disappointing thing about surrealism, it's trying to be different. Mm -hmm. And yet it still relies on tropes and, like, normal taboos and mm -hmm. not really pushing against, like, those taboos and tropes in a way that's, like, meaningful and thoughtful. It's just like, look, a woman that's uh, naked. Totally. Yeah, exactly. It's supposed to be, it's, like, shocking but with, like, no real meaning. Like, no cultural critique, no... Nothing really of substance. Yeah, exactly. And so Andre Masson did a mannequin who, that was considered the most successful one. He, um, the head was covered with a wicker cage. The mouth was gagged with velvet and a pansy was placed over the mouth. 
This became the defining image of the submissive erotic object, the ultimate subject of the male gaze. And in general, there were lots of themes of violence and dismemberment, which is, again is just like related to the surrealist obsession with women, sex, and violence. And fetish was part of surrealism. Imagery of body parts became common in surrealism during this time. A lot of imagery of eyes, breasts, hands, legs, and feet. Um, and then fur and velvet. The book I was reading was like, because, you know, of its obvious association with pubic hair, which I was like, literally not once have I <laughs> thought of velvet as... Yeah, because they do use a lot of texture to allude to, in, in the surrealism art, uh, yeah. to allude to pubic hair. Yeah, it's very, and it makes sense now that I'm looking at it. And now when I see, like, furry shoes, I, like, see it now as a reference to surrealism. And, yeah, you see this in Scaparelli's work, and it's, like also related to this like animalistic Freudian id. Fuck Freud, but yes. Yeah. Um, but then women. So they were often the, the object of surrealist art, quoting whether as muses, mothers, erotic objects, or goddesses, women were a focus of surrealism, a vessel through which to explore a variety of psychological and emotive states. I guess women were seen as being closer to nature and thus like, closer to the unconscious. So like, I guess just like our... Yeah, we're like... we. We're more in tune with the, you know, the woohoo-y. Right. We're Mother Nature. I mean, like, it's all it's all very feminine attribute. Like, when you think of the word psychic, you think a woman. A woman, mm-hmm, for sure. Even though I had a male psychic. But every time, I like to clar- clarify that sometimes, just to be like, yeah, I had a man psychic. What do you think it was a regular, I don't know, yeah. regular psychic? What, I, yeah, I do like the idea of the term a male psychic, like, <laughs> that you have to specify, but... Um, and, like, sometimes this was romantic, like, Andre Breton employed, like, love, desire, mediated by women to explore the surrealist experience of, like, the marvelous, whereas other versions were really dark and objectifying. So it's no surprise that women responded by making surrealist art that was different. And rather than representing bodies as dismembered and disassembled and recombined, like many male surrealist artists did, women often replaced the body with objects. It was mo- It was way more like metaphorical and way more like way less overt many surrealist women consciously adopted the hermetic tradition rejecting positivism and exploring like occult practices do you know what positivism is we looked this up last yeah i i I looked it up again recently what what did you find well they were against slavery so i knew that one but it's like mostly focused on science-based right uh, questions and answers, and so it's more. It, Brazil has a quote on oh on their flag on their flag that is positivism, and I know that from another book. But yeah, so it's about like everything. Everything should be like rationally justifiable or su- scientifically verified, and which is cool in theory. I mean, there's a, obviously there's a lot of problems that came with Brazil, but that was one of the things that they do. They re- when they revolted, I guess. I oh, some of the history was like they switched over to positivism. Interesting, which. Versus, like, church. Yeah. It's so interesting because, yeah, like, I'm I'm against the obsession with the scientific method as as it being the only method for exploring research, for doing research. People will say, like, if something hasn't been verified by science, then it's, like, not worth, yeah. like, talking about. Or they'll kind of just put down your ideas, which is, like, very rejecting of, like, indigenous right. traditional ways of knowing. But, yeah, it also can be, like, a reaction to religion yeah. and, like, a way of promoting, like, sound judgment. Yeah. There's pros and cons, of course, yeah. So these women were getting mystic is basically what we're saying. They they were, yeah, rejecting that 
Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm cool with that in theory again. Like, yeah. Right. We'll give them. We'll we'll let them have it. And Merritt Oppenheim was one of these artists. She did the furry teacup, which you you had seen before. I love it. Obsessed. And the whole point was to like. The whole idea is, like, imagine having a furry teacup up to your mouth, and what do you imagine? Right. And it's like, yeah. I mean, I'm imagining it right you now. Get it? You get it? <laughs> do you get do, it? Do I have to spell it out to you, for you? Um, and so these and other furry objects explored images of femininity imprinted in the minds of men and projected onto women. Merritt Oppenheim was friends with Leonor Fini, who was an Argentinian and... Italian surrealist painter, designer, illustrator, and author. She would do these depictions of like really powerful and erotic women. And they wrote letters back and forth, sometimes exchanging drawings and ideas for clothing and jewelry designs, which is just like, dude, friend goals. Yeah, friend goals. Um, uh, honestly, I, I'm like, let the women do the work because this is already way more interesting than anything Dolly's done. So much more interesting. And the cup and the teacup, I think is just so smart and so... Like, it is a commentary on society. And it's so much more surrealist because it's like, I mean, a lot of the way sur surrealism is incorporated into fashion now is basically just taking objects out of context. It's like, instead of a chair being a thing you sit on, it's a thing you wear in your head or in the case of, what's her name? Who had the chair hat recently? Oh, Doja Cat. Doja Cat. In, in her case, it's like also becomes a chair afterwards. But yeah, it's like taking objects out of context, which I feel like these women were doing in such smarter ways. And Leonor Feeney was a cool, was a character. I think I want to do a TikTok on it. Yes, you heard, heard it here first. Yeah. For both women, what they wore, how they looked, and what they made were integrated spheres in their artistic lives. Um, and Leonor Feeney dressed really flamboyantly. She reflected her eccentric personality in the way she dressed, and this appealed to the surrealist. She organized a group hang and came dressed in a cardinal scarlet robe saying, Ooh. I like the sacrilegious nature of dressing as a priest and the experience of being a woman and wearing the clothes of a man who would never know a woman's body. Uh, she like, just opened the door and, and said that, and they all wrote it down. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But she actually refused to join the Surrealists because of Breton's preoccupation with formal positions. Like, she said this was bourgeois and constricting. I mean, she sounds bourgeois, but I wouldn't disagree. I'm sure it's all bourgeois. Like, if I ever got rich, I would still be describing things bourgeois, I feel like. but For sure, yeah. And so she also, like, never married. She had, like, she was polyamorous. She would, like, live with various partners and I love whatnot. That. And just, like, felt, said, like, she she couldn't do her art otherwise which I'm like yeah because having a partner you just like get into your routine and you're really just living life considering them all the time yeah and it's like I don't know the, the other day I got we our work gave us $25 food credit for lunch one day because we had like some big meeting and Brian was home with me and I just had this like inner battle of like okay if I offer him to get in on this $25 reimbursement. It's going to be more than $25. So I'm basically just going to be buying him lunch instead of getting a free lunch. But I was like, I can't just order food for myself with him here. Like, yeah. it just feels like impossible or just like, un I would just feel like such an asshole. Yeah. Like he would never do that to me. Anyway, I'm selfless is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm also like with that idea because like I'm single right now and I'm just like, I'm already working towards goals. It's like either the person I'm dating has to be fully in support of what I'm doing and just focus on me and feed me and and or I can't do the things I have to do because like yeah, having to think about something or someone else or like doing, I don't know. Speaking just, of which, I'm going to text Brian right now and ask him to get beer. We <laughs> live in a world. He's like downstairs. <laughs> He's in bed with his cats right now. <laughs> See, this is the version of screaming at your parents that we don't yes. have to do anymore. Yeah, exactly. Times have changed. 
Um, okay, so other artists responded to the surrealist theme of dismemberment differently. There's a photograph by Lee Miller of a plated breast removed during a mastectomy, which is supposed to like mock the artifice of photographic editing and prosthetics, trumping it with like real dismemberment. So it's like all of these men were doing these like mannequins and like kind of like pretend dismemberment and she literally just straight up photographs a removed breast on a plate. I think I showed you the photo mm -hmm. and you were like not here for it. It's gross. It's a lot. Wait, who was this? Lee Miller's? Lee Miller. Well, because it's still like... I, can't I just don't... It has too many I, L's. I don't want... It's, it's a man, right? No, it's a woman. It's a woman. Okay. I was like, you said too many L's. Oh, yeah. Because... Oh, by the way, uh, I was trying to figure it out. Hope has L's doesn't work, and it's pretty hysterical. On my computer. Um, so, we can't type anything. Lee Miller has three L's, so that's rude. I made it work, though. Lee Miller was a jack-of-all-trades, a model, a surrealist, a world traveler, a socialite, and a World War II journalist. And she's a babe. Yeah, she's a model. Okay. Um, well, okay. Yeah, I thought it was a lot because it's just, again, focusing on women's attributes and, like, just being shocking. I don't know what it's saying otherwise. You know what I mean? Like, then... Then versus I think for me it's about like men sexualizing women through the dismemberment and she's like okay you like dismembering us here's a fucking breast on a plate I I get where you could get that but I wonder if that was actually her perspective mm. uh, yeah but yeah yeah anyway yeah. okay eat so. it in front of me bitch <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah if there's one thing I know about women it's that they be shopping so let's talk about fashion and how surrealism started to intersect with it. So Elsa Scaparelli is the fashion designer most known for surrealist designs. And she collaborated with a lot of surrealist artists that we've already mentioned and was a surrealist artist in her own right. So she was born in Rome, 1890 to an academic family. In 1911, she published a collection of overtly sensual poems. <laughs> and when her parents found out about it, she was sent to a convent in Switzerland. Dude, is she, did I make this joke? We've re-recorded this, but like, did you ever watch Bob's Burger? I also assume we're going to tell them in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have watched Bob's Burgers, yes. Or Tina. Is it Tina? The, yeah. The, that's what it reminds me oh, of. Oh, her erotic fan fiction. Yeah. And the character in Sex Education that, that writes like the alien. Yes. I'm all here for the corny ass sensual poems. I mean, yeah, I feel like there's so many women who've experienced being shamed for expressing their sexuality in that way. Yeah. Because it's, yeah, exactly. It's like men can't, men are not going to write the best porn. Okay? Yeah. And so honestly, what I masturbate to, this is already too much information, but what I masturbate to the most is the written word. And no I can, way. yeah, I love reading stuff. Erotica? Oh, yes. I didn't know that. It's online. I, I would never buy it because I think it's just deep shame. Also, I'm cheap in certain ways and that's one. Mm -hmm. And there's free erotica everywhere. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, to a problematic level. Yeah. But, um, yeah, anyways. So I'm here for Love it. learning more about <laughs> you. Yeah, so she went on a hunger strike, and that's how she got out of the uh, convent, which I'm just like, God, that sounds so hard. Yeah, it sucks that, no, she's literally getting shamed. She went to a convent. Mm -hmm. I just, but she was also very rich, right? Shh. Yes. So she kind of got out of it easily. This is also before the poke in the head, what are they called? A lobotomy? Yeah, this is right before that. So she got off easy, maybe. I think she did. They yeah. just either send you off to... Those were the options. Send you off to a convent, and later on it was, like, convent or lobotomy. Ugh, horrible. So in 1928, she did, like, a sportswear line. Like, the the period between the convent and, like, her starting fashion is, like, a little nebulous to me. Like, she marries and has a baby, but then gets divorced and, like, moves back to Europe with her kid. 
and like she hangs out with rich people and that's like how she gets into fashion because they show her all their cool stuff and she's like huh maybe i'll have a go at making some really amazing clothing and so that's what she does so she debuts a collection of knitwear pieces swimsuits beach pajamas which like i'm interested and accessories and the motifs became more varied with abstract tortoises skeletons sailor tattoos etc as did the colors playing on contrasts and this blend of haute couture and sportswear had such an impact across the pond that american textile manufacturers offered her her first licensing agreements so she became the first female fashion designer to be featured on the cover of the uh, of time magazine in 1934 and i found a short snippet on her website like this not her website but like house of scaparelli nowadays you know they talk about her, the history of of the brand and um there's like a brief thing mentioning that her workers went on strike in in 18 in, in 1949 after the company had obviously like grown a lot and the narrative on scaparelli's website is quote despite the the strike of part of her haute couture ateliers elsa presented her collection in august 1949 Rude. the pieces were not finished you could see all the pins the fabric swatches and no buttonholes however the youthful style evident dare evident daring and the evening dress blah 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 oh there was a, was a, a visible bra visible bra so they and then like it was striking newsweek devoted its first its front page to elsa so it's like <laughs> they're just ignoring that like she couldn't finish her work because she didn't have the workers so they're like it was almost like deconstruction but accidentally deconstruction because there wasn't anybody to actually construct the fucking work well yeah and they're talking about it all bootstrappy like she did it all herself like and the vision the the ideas were so good that like she didn't even need their help and it's like dude okay so no what clearly is happening is that she's mistreating her workers and then she's like almost like crossing her own picket line or crossing the picket line to just she's like i can do it by myself but she couldn't but it was like falling apart at the seams that it was so daring it was like mm -hmm. that they were like well they can't it's almost like owen in mean girls where they cut like mm. the boobs of the holes area mm -hmm. like the boob hole area and mm -hmm. then she just wears it anyway yeah it's like that it's like they're just like oh my god and she's like accidentally had cut like I don't know, something that showed yeah. the bra strap, and they're like, woo, look at that. It's just because she's popular already and rich. Yeah, yeah. She had, like I said, collaborations with surrealist artists, and there was some groundwork that catalyzed these collaborations. Um, so for one, like we talked about, the application of psychology to clothing was a growing field in the 1930s, and it aided the assimilation of surrealist ideas, also inspired by psychology, into the fashion industry. So J.C. Flugel published The Psychology of Clothes, 1930. Um, following like Freud and he outlined the symbolic value of clothing saying it is only in the, the last few years that there has been any clear realization of the fact that clothes not only serve to arouse sexual interest by but may themselves actually symbolize the sexual organs here again psychoanalysis has added considerably to our knowledge and has shown that in the domain of clothes phallic symbolism is scarcely less important than for instance in the domain of religion Blah, blah, blah. We know that a great many articles of dress, such as the shoe, the tie, the hat, the collar, and even large, more voluminous garments, such as the coat, the trousers, and the mantle may be phallic symbols, while the show, the girdle, and the garter, as well as most jewels, may be corresponding female symbols, which I'm like, what? Yeah. What? The hat is a, is a phallic symbol? First of all, it's literally a hole. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I mean, like, but you put your head in the hole, which also is like, that's... 
whatever but like i think it, it also extenuates the head so your head looks longer so i don't know your whole body kind of looks like a penis interesting i mean i think the whole thing is stupid and i'm just like who the fuck cares yeah no freud cared that's why Ugh, i know I, yeah it's just freud cared a lot it was like the freudian slip right it's mm-hmm. like we all want to fuck our mom and dad mm-hmm. which it's funny to me when people use people use the term freudian slip to mean so many things where they're like Oh, I can't wait for ice cream later. Oops, I met salad, Freudian slip, and it's like, That's wait, no. you want to fuck your mom? <laughs> or you just meant that you want ice cream later? What the fuck are you talking about? We don't actually, I'm like, I'm saying Freudian slip, like, I know what the fuck I'm talking about, but I just know that Freud, real, I just know, I remember some things, like the oral stage of a baby meant, like, mm. you wanted to suck off your parents, <laughs> I think. <laughs> No, you're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you had an obsession with your mom or something. It's like an obsession. I'm like, that's actually not. It's just Freud just wrote some shit down and we took it for a word. We took it it way too far. Yeah. Like we do with a lot of things that men say. And he was on coke too. Like he was like very high. Right. Anyways. Right. Yeah. Um, There was another article that came out. Tristan Zara analyzed Scaparelli's hats for their sexual symbolism. But unlike Freud and Flugel, um... Zara saw them as a symbol of female genitalia, and Scaparelli basically exploited this connotation in her collection. She's like, oh, you think that these are dicks or vaginas? Great. Like, let's hype it up. Yeah. Um, and and she claimed that working with these artists, with, with the surrealist artists, allowed her to be understood beyond the crude and boring reality of merely making a dress to sell, which, like, vibes with me i get that like having to associate with artists to be taken seriously when like people don't think of his fashion as serious although she was making haute couture but and so it was this dedication to creativity beyond commercialism that led gallery owner julian levy to declare scaparelli the only designer to correctly interpret surrealism okay fun fact about scaparelli that i learned through andre leon tally's by uh autobiography or memoir i don't really know the difference but is her grand granddaughter became like a model of high fashion because the Vogue editor in chief at the time in the forties and fifties like saw her at a ball mm. and she was just like you have to be involved and apparently Shaparli Sh- was like really upset about it she didn't want her to be involved in fashion oh interesting that's all that's a little tidbit little that tidbit I- okay yeah so she collaborated with lots of people including Merritt Oppenheim um, who designed a furry cuff for her. Um, someone named Eileen Agar made hats with found objects and she made one with Scaparelli. She said, to me, the use of found objects is surrealist because it's sort of about, oh wait, or no, I think this is me. This is what I said, which is that the use of found objects is surrealist because it's about process and inspiration, like dreams. It's about just like walking around and like just seeing things being inspired and turning it into art. It's clearly you because that's genius. Thank you. Um, <laughs> she did a hat with gloves on it. Um, and most famously... The hat with gloves on it just it cracks me up because I just like see her hot gluing some gloves onto a hat. And people being like, oh, yeah, oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, yeah, so the, the kind of thing my dad would see in a museum and be like, this is art. <laughs> um, which I thought was... Sorry, go ahead. Nothing. I was just laughing at it. There was a good TikTok the other day about Mark Rothko, you know, who does like... He does, like, uh, a lot of color work. Yeah. It's it's the kind of thing, like, 
it's just like a bunch of colors on a canvas but I guess he's the most cried in front of artist because these colors they're like meant to elicit emotions and they are really beautiful so with, with Dolly she made what's called the tears dress which or tears I don't know which plays off a figure from a Dolly painting I'm just realizing it's either tears or tears mm hmm because it does look like tears in the dress it's like it looks almost like blood it's like um, it's probably tears yeah but so there's a Dali painting in which someone's wearing a dress. And so she made a dress like inspired by that painting, which I think is pretty cool. The dress is kind of like, it doesn't blow me away, but I understand why. Like she did also some like innovative things with fabric itself. Like, mm, I wish I had an example, but. She did innovative things with, just trust us on just that. Just trust us. Um, yeah, watch that Like guy a hat on a glove. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um she did a skeleton dress that has this sort of like boning in it to look like a skeleton again the hat well this one was a hat that looked like a shoe and her work with Dali brought surrealism into the mainstream and his collaboration with her work made it seem more interesting I guess um and I don't know if we agree with this I feel like last time we talked about this we were like maybe maybe not but by appropriating Dali's motifs and wearing them with pride the society woman for whom the dress was designed became an active participant in surrealism. And so with much of Scaparelli's work, she turns a laughing gaze on the surrealist fascination with death and sex. She's making it clear that women are in on the joke. Yeah, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. I mean, certain women, maybe maybe rich women that are allowed to have access to that world. Um, but but even then, do you think that, that it, it in any meaningful way reacts to the like, objectification of women by male surrealist artists say that again do you so like let's say let's say everyone was able to wear these dresses instead of just rich women do you think that like it made it clear that women were in on the surrealist joke like do you think that it does like provide any meaningful response to the objectification of women through surrealist art no i mean to me i'm just like i don't know if women i mean i'm sure there were like women that were part of the the movement at this time of against the this patriarchal view of women's bodies but i don't feel like there was a lot of education and learning and unlearning of that i guess and i don't think sharpelli i mean like i can't attest to her but i don't know if she had the information and knowledge to know exactly what she was doing you know what i mean like she was yeah. making pretty dresses and she wanted to be in this realism world so she just like found the person that's the most famous because of capitalism and then like bought into that world and then it was like look we're all accepting it because i'm a woman you know what i mean right right we're, versus like Merritt oppenheim that was like doing something meaningful in response like doing a different kind of art where it's like scaparelli almost feels like a little bit like you're just literally trying to become the painting that dolly made yeah like you're making it so that women get to embody the image that he made in this yeah. painting it's like you know like I don't know, Cassie and Euphoria. <laughs> She's like Cassie and Euphoria trying to be accepted by men. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyways. Um, and yeah, so, so okay, here's, here's where she gets more innovative with her fabric. So about both outlandish and ever practical, Scaparelli was the first designer to include zips and fitted bras in women's wear. Um, and then the tears, the tears dress was an early adoption of viscose rayon. So like, I don't know, it seemed like she also was like, you know, just tr trying to be a innovative designer. I mean, yeah, she definitely, I mean, Hakator isn't for the faint of heart. I will say that there's a lot of like, um, details. It's detail oriented. Mm, for sure. There is that. But I just like, just because you're a good carpenter doesn't make you a good designer. Mm, mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I think including a built-in bra with a dress, like, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I don't have too much to say about it, but... I mean, that's nice. A built-in bra to a dress, it's like she has boobs. But it's like we still are... It's like... It's basically just saying you have to wear a bra, I guess. Yeah. That's true. So... Yeah. So she inclu- continued to include surrealism into her designs, including the design of her window displays window displays and for a while surrealist window displays were really a thing which like also speaks to how capitalist surrealism was you know and how like it was basically using shock factor to sell things um it was the end result was about selling things yeah it was a symbol of consumerism and desire and um in 1945 marcel duchamp and enrico donati created a window display for andre breton he had a book coming out and so they created a window display for the de- debut of his book. It was called Surrealism Painting and Arcane 17. This was in New York. Blay was a headless mannequin dressed in an apron, reading the book with um, a faucet coming out of the, her thigh, emitting urine. It was only on display for a couple of hours at Gotham Bookmart before people came to complain. And so, yeah, it was like just trying to be real shocking. Okay, so Duchamp, just so you, so you guys know, is the same person that did the upside down uh, urinal. Like, I feel like that's mm-hmm. something that comes up. He, like, is the face of surrealism. But he's actually the face of Dadaism. So that's where you, I'm kind of confused on, like... Well, I'm sure there was overlap. There's definitely overlap. Yeah. And... But it's also, like, I think where Republicans, like, point out, like, look what happened to art. You know what I mean? They're like, look at this. I feel like there's always a statement of being like, <laughs> is this art? But that's, that was his whole point. Uh-huh. Yeah, so see, I guess he was just, like, into urine art. Like, yeah, I think he was more, yeah, it was still about shock and they awe. Like, they, like, in, they hire him, and he's like, well, you know, it's going to have to include P, because that's just <laughs> sort know, of what I do. You know how he, he's considered a painter. That's it. Okay, so he, like, paints urinals. No, it, it says something, like, I don't oh, know he what he painted that, on a urinal. I barely, he wrote words. Uh-huh. Letters. <laughs> <laughs> but he's considered a painter, and I'm like, of what? What I'm confused about is, like, was it real urine coming out, and how did people even know it was supposed to be urine? Like, I guess it must have been really yellow. Yeah, that is a good question. I mean, sure, it's easy to get urine, though. Sure. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And surrealist artists took advantage of, like, the commercial appeal of surrealism. And speaking of being a total sellout... Uh, Breton also christened Dali with his nickname Avita Dollars, or Eager for Dollars, which he earned because he was. In the 1970s, Dali demanded $100,000 an hour to star as, quote, Emperor of the Universe in Alejandro Jodorowsky's ambitious and failed Dune film project. Oh. Yeah, I think I heard about this. Because, you know, Dune was coming out, and there was, like, all these, like, failed Dune movies. It's like, why well, try to do it? Also, he did a Disney film. Maybe that was Dune. Mm. But, and it never came to fruition. Yeah, okay. And then in the 1980s, near the time he died, he was found to have committed countless instances of fraud by flooding the art market with his signature. He would sign blank sheets of paper that fakers could then print with seemingly verifiable imitations of his paintings and sell. Damn, I would still go to Dolly's house if you're in Italy. Yeah. Spain? I suppose. I don't know. Who gives a shit? Yeah, I guess, I mean... I'm only saying that because I'm just interested, but, like, in how he decorated. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean... <laughs> but, like, I think he still sucks massive amounts of balls, and he definitely exploited his own workers. He had people basically painting Dolly paintings, mm-hmm. and he would just sign his name on them. Yeah. Yeah, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago in October and his paint one of his paintings was there and I, I just don't understand why we have to feature him I get that like 
I think people, like I've said that and had people in response be like, well, every artist has a sordid past or like everyone, Ew. you know. But like, yes, I think that's what they always say. And But I'm also like, but it's the men that are in the mainstream. There are women that have like a diverse background that are not being, that are just as talented that aren't being celebrated. Yeah, it's also just like people, I people who are at a museum to learn, people who might not be experts, it's like, it's your opportunity to educate them like on new artists. Like there's yeah. so many surrealist artists and other artists that you could be showing. And, and Dada artists. There's a ton of women Dada artists that are like. Yeah. It's just weird. It's like that. I said that actually in a survey from Seattle Art Museum recently where they were talking about like diversity and representation and whatnot. I was like, they're like, what makes you feel like not, I don't remember what the question was, but my, I was like, I just don't understand why we would see Dali in a museum, which I did have never seen at Seattle Art Museum, but just for example. <laughs> no, you, I think you make a really good point because I, like, lately, Recompose hired an artist mm. to do a mural for our new headquarters, and he was a white, cis, hetero male, not even from Seattle, that was into NFTs. So I was just like, for a sustainable anti-racist company, which there are none of those things, by the way, to just freely hire an artist to do a mural on Toromas, the Dramas River land, like, so fucking over, like, what? Mm-hmm. It, it, when there's an opportunity to show marginalized, there's so many artists out there that are talented, and even not talented, that just deserve to have some recognition. Yeah. It upsets me that it's just not, like, happening more regularly. Yeah, that is upsetting. You know what else is upsetting? That Scaparelli's design house went bankrupt in 1954 i'm just kidding i don't care that it's like, <laughs> but just so it was just insane. Insane. yeah um but it came back in 2013 daniel rose rosberry is now the, the artistic director and he has brought the house back into modern relevance in the words of bliss foster and he nods heavily to elsa's early surrealist pieces um the, just the concept of displacement removing the object from its expected context he does that a lot in the 2019 collection, there's a Velcro dress where it's, like, there. there's, like, Velcro pieces that you can just, like, move them all around oh, the dress. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that's super fun. And in the 2020 collection, you see the motif of hair with, there's, like, rainbow hair, like, all over a dress. There's actual hair dryers. There's hair used as, like, a print. And then um, the 2020 coll- 2021 collection had dresses with abs. Kim Kardashian wore one in green. And then... I'm over that look, by the way. There's so many of those now. Yeah. It looks like someone's body's got scanned. I'm just like... And I feel like it's being trying to be inclusive, but it's not. Hmm. Anyways. Yeah, and then Gigi Hadid wore the lung necklace to the Cannes oh, Film yeah. Festival recently, which um, I, I saw a lot of photographs of that. So, Was yeah. it Gigi Hadid or Bella Hadid? I think it was Bella. Can you double check? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you just know by looking. I don't know why I know. I, Bella. It was yeah, Bella you're Hadid. Right, you're right. It was Bella Hadid. And, and I think I just remember I looked Is it up a while. Is that where her nipples are? Hot damn. Close. They are so high. Well, she has tape going up. And she's also pretty artificial. Have you... She just came out with a interview recently that was kind of very telling that people are talking about now not not for this podcast yeah okay so why don't you bring us up to speed with surrealism right now jack okay so there was a well a couple things shout out to Kristen bateman for talking about surrealism coming back uh she's a writer and on tiktok and pretty like big on the what's the the streetwear culture like Mm. she's Mm -hmm. amazing yeah she does a lot of like fashion week yeah. Coverage. Yeah. yeah, she's amazing. And I, uh, I read some articles about her talking about just in general uh, her, like, 
representation of how like surrealism is coming back. But that's aside from the fact that's what you guys know that I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, but Pyra Moss is the big one that I wanted to talk about because Pyra Moss did um, a showcasing at Madame C.J. Walker's house, who was like the first made millionaire. Um, she like first um, in the U.S. Woman. First, first woman millionaire. I, yeah. Yes, and um, self-made, and I think okay. that's important. And she, so that's kind of important. She's also black and like, I think came out of slavery. And so doing it at this, at her estate was really important because he's a black designer mm-hmm. and they had a black speaker uh, that was a, a former black, uh, black Panther. And that was really awesome. And he's like, I think one or like the first like hot, hot couture, like Paris, I don't know, somebody like very like, a very established title for Hakature in Paris gave him, like, an award, and he was, like, the first black American to ever mm-hmm. win. And I'm like, come on, we can do better than that. This mm-hmm. is, like, in 2019, 2020, actually. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, we're just now doing that? Anyways, he did very surrealist runway, and it was all dedicated to black inv- inventors. And... I'll show you. Show like, you. one of them was, like, the peanut butter jar, right? Yeah. One of them was, like, the the light, what is it called? The green, red light, light. Oh. The, what is that called? I don't know. Traffic light. Oh. <laughs> the green, red light. And so, and then, like, these big, like, the peanut butter one, it was, like, a whole dress that was, like, huge and cylindrical. Okay, this yeah. person's walking down wearing a huge hand. hand with a mop. Holding a mop. A refrigerator. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. The refrigerator that has magnets on it that says, but who in blunt invented black trauma? Yeah. Oh, that's just... So I don't know important. what that one is, but it's like a hairbrush. A hairbrush. Yeah, the ch- the game chess. Was like, invented by a black person? Things things that we wouldn't know. I know Nerf Gun was also too. Yeah, it probably was invited by a ch- black person, but we just wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. I know peanut butter is because that's the one thing that they told us. Oh, my God. Sorry. You're getting an ad for Coca-Cola with coffee. And I'm in, I'm not in the business of promoting Coca-Cola, but damn, that sounds so good. Also ice cream. Anyways, yes. Yeah, I feel like... like Sorry, getting- Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> I want to fuck my dad. That's horrible. You're like, I don't really, maybe? No. What? Stop, stop. Okay, but we have to go. We're hungry. We have people coming over. Yeah, dude, I've got to make some shrimp. Check out Pyro Moss. He's an amazing surrealist, uh, hakatur artist. He surpasses... Uh, Chaparli by a million, but uh, Schiaparelli. Whatever. She's Italian. That's all I know. Yeah. We didn't bring that up, but I'm, uh, I should have. No, I said she was born in Rome. Oh, okay, 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 okay. But yeah, I guess we didn't like really talk about it. You know, it. I'd like to dive into my Italian people. Anyways. Yeah, exactly. My people. Okay, well, that's all we've got. I love you. I love you too.